Jesus said in Matthew 28 verse 19, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Welcome to Go Teach All Nations, bringing you Christ's teachings through Australian and international speakers. And here is today's presenter, Pastor Gary Kent. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege of being able to worship you in freedom here in Sydney today. And Lord, as we open the Word of God and study the Scriptures together, we invite your presence to be with us. Bless us and grant us a rich Sabbath day's blessing. For we ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Friends, today I have brought with me some of my toys. And uh, I'm going to show some of them to you today. And uh, I don't want you playing with your toys during the sermon, but how many of you know what these are? Can you see that? Now open them up. Do you know what these are? These are called Lego bricks. Lego bricks. And uh, children love to play with Lego bricks. And so do some adults. What do we do with Lego bricks? We what? If you were to use one word, what would you say? We what? We build. With Lego bricks, we build. And we build all sorts of things with Lego bricks. With Lego bricks, you can build simple houses. Then if you, uh, if you have more time and more bricks, you can build more sophisticated constructions. And if you have lots of Lego bricks, then my, you can build something really significant and substantial. You can, with Lego, with Lego, you can build boats, ships, you can build aeroplanes. With Lego bricks, you can build vehicles, cars, buses, ambulances, fire engines. Do you know, friends, that seven Lego sets sell somewhere in the world every second? Every second, seven sets of Lego are sold somewhere in the world. And you know, last year, last year, 46 billion Lego bricks were produced. Can you believe that? 46 billion? 46 billion Lego bricks were produced at a rate of 5.2 million bricks per hour. You know, if you laid all of those bricks end-to-end like that, if you laid them all end-to-end, the number of bricks sold last year would stretch around the world more than 18 times. Why? Because we love to build. We love to build. You know, I've got a little guy here. Let me see if I can... uh, if I can find him. Now, where's he got to? You know those little Lego, Lego figurines? You know the ones I'm, I'm talking about? I know that. Oh, here he is. These little, these little Lego figurines. You know, the first minifigure 
was produced in 1978. Do you know that today there are more of these little plastic people than there are humans on the planet? And do you know what? I think most of them live at our house. Because when I come home after the children had been playing, they seem to be these little people everywhere. You know those Lego vehicles that you can make. You notice that these Lego vehicles run around on tires. Do you know that the Lego group is the largest manufacturer of tires in the world? Now you thought it was Michelin or, or Goodyear or one of those big names, didn't you? It's Lego. Lego make more tires than any other organization on the planet. Now friends, since 1949, 560 billion Lego parts have been produced. Now, those Lego bricks, that's 80 of them for every human being, every person on the planet. Now, if you stacked all those Lego parts, all those Lego bricks, if you built a tower like children love to do, if all those bricks were placed on top of each other, they would reach to the moon and back 10 times. Lego, can you believe it? Why this fascination, this passion for Lego? Because children love to what? To build. They love to put one brick on top of another. They just love to build. Do you know that children around the world spend five billion hours a year building Lego? Can you believe that? Five billion hours a year building with Lego bricks. You see, friends, ingrained in the human psyche is this passion, this desire to build, to build. And you know, when we leave childhood and grow into adults, we still build. Isn't that right? We human beings build wherever we go. <coughs> and it's not just modern humans that build. Humans have been building since the dawn of time. Take the pyramids of Egypt. Here, the, the Giza pyramids. You know, these Giza pyramids were built 4,500 years ago. Do you know that they are still the largest man-made structures on the planet? Because we human beings love to build. Now, forget about Lego blocks. See these large blocks of stone that make up these pyramids. If all, this is the largest of those Giza pyramids. It's called Cheops Pyramid or the Great Pyramid. Now, friends, if all the stones in this one pyramid were cut into not Lego blocks, but 30 centimeter square blocks, and they were placed one after the other, they would go right around Australia twice. It's not just kids who like to build. We humans build. And if you look at the seven wonders of the ancient world, they all had to do with building. 
And so as you travel around the world, wherever you go, you find the building, the architectural masterpieces that humans have built. You can go to Tibet where you will see the Batala Palace. You can go to Amritsar where you will see the, the beautiful Golden Temple. You can go to Istanbul where we were last week and there you can visit the magnificent church Hagia Sophia. You can go to Germany and you'll see King Ludwig's palace. You can go to France and you'll see Mont, uh, Saint Michel. You can go to Spain and you'll see the amazing Guggenheim Museum. Or London where you'll see the Gherkin. Or you can go to Dubai where you'll see Alburj, Arab. New York. And there you'll see the Chrysler Building. Just a stone's throw from here, you'll see the magnificent opera house. But you know, friends, of all these buildings, the one that I find the most charming and the most beautiful is the Taj Mahal. A magnificent building. Just so charming with its, with its onion dome and its, and its white marble. Now, the Taj Mahal was built by Shah Jahan and it was commenced building, commenced work began in the year 1632. Do you know that it took 22 years to build the Taj Mahal? 22 years to build this building. There were 20,000, listen to this friends, 20,000 craftsmen were involved in building for 22 years, and they worked in shifts and they built day and night. 1,000 elephants were involved or used to transport the material. And so the Taj Mahal is acknowledged today as one of the seven wonders of the modern world. A magnificent building. And millions of people come from all over the world to admire its beauty. But friends, few know the equally beautiful story behind the Taj Mahal. You see, the Taj Mahal was built by a king, Shah Jahan, but it's not a palace. It's not a, it's not a shrine of worship. Although built by a king, the Taj Mahal is actually a tomb. It's a tomb built to commemorate a love story that is even more beautiful than its pale white walls. Let me share the story with you. Shah Jahan was the most powerful of the Mughal emperors. He was king of a large empire, the most powerful man in his part of the world. And one day he was walking, as a young man, he was walking through the marketplace when he saw a woman who he thought was the most beautiful in all the world. And so he proposed marriage. Now you think that would be a fairly straightforward procedure. The king proposes marriage, and before too long the marriage takes place. But back in these days you had to get the permission of the astrologers. The astrologers had to say that, yes, the stars are all in alignment before you can get married. And so it was five years 
before they were married. But when Shah Jahan married his beautiful bride Mumtaz, a partnership began that was to last a lifetime. She soon showed that she was a very talented lady. She could assist in in running the empire. She had a tender heart. She cared for those in need. And she was a constant companion of the Shah. Wherever he went, she went. And she bore him a large family. And on one occasion, he was setting out to meet a foe, an enemy in the south of the country. Mumtaz was pregnant with their 14th child. And Shah said to her, Shah Jahan said to her, you need to stay here at the palace. It's too dangerous for someone in your condition to travel all this way to engage in this battle. But she insisted in coming. And the tragedy is, that she died in childbirth. For Shah Jahan, it was the end of his world. For eight days, the historians tell us, he spent locked in his room just, gro- uh, just groaning and, and, and weeping in agony. When he emerged, his hair had turned grey. He was heartbroken, and he was never the same again. The love of his life was gone. The love that seemed eternal, these two had been together all this time. That love had been snatched away. But this man, this man found a way to immortalize his passion. He found a way, and what he decided to do was this. He decided to build a mausoleum for his empress as beautiful as their love. And so the Taj Mahal was built, an exquisite monument enshrining his wife's remains. The perfect match had been cut short. But Shah Jahan made sure it would be remembered for ages to come in this exquisite structure. And so he built a monument to eternal love. A monument to eternal love. And friends, when people today stand before the Taj Mahal, they are really looking at the ideal of undying love. Commitment that transcends even death. Now the Taj Mahal is a, is, a, is a wonderful monument. But you know, friends, I believe that each of us can build an equally, living, uh, equally beautiful living monument with our relationships. In a world of stunted relationships, we can make our own eloquent statements about undying love. We too can build, not with Lego blocks, not with bricks and mortar, but with emotion. We can build an an edifice 
and make our own eloquent statements about undying love. But to do that, we need to break down the ideal into its component parts. After all, what is love? What is it? How do we define love? What is it really made of? Well, friends, this book, the Bible, gives us a wonderful answer. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Corinthians, the 13th chapter. This is the Bible's great love chapter as beautiful and grand in its own way as the Taj Mahal. And I want you to listen what it says here. I'm reading from 1 Corinthians, the 13th chapter. And I'd like you to notice verses 4 and 5. 1 Corinthians, the 13th chapter. And notice with me verses 4 and 5. This is what it says. Love is what? Love is patient. Now remember, friends, we are, we are talking about building our own edifice that will last forever. We're talking about building a relationship that can be lifelong and lasting. But to do that, we must understand what's involved. We must understand what love is all about. Here is God's definition of love. Love is what? Love is patient. Love is kind. So it tells us what love is, and now it tells us what love is not. Notice, love is patient, love is kind, but love does not envy. Love does not boast. It's not proud. It's not rude. And notice what it says next. It's not what? It's not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. I'm going to read that again. My friends, this is some of the most profound wisdom ever given to human beings. Because you see, human beings were made to love. To give love and to receive love. Human beings were designed to have relationships. And friends, you will not find happiness outside of relationships. We are social creatures as human beings. God designed us to love and to be loved. God designed us to have relationships, to develop friendships. And here God is telling us how to do it. He's giving us the secret to happiness. So love is what? Love is patient. And love is what? Love is kind. There we have it. Now what love is not? Love does not envy. Love does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. Not easily angered. And it keeps no record of wrongs. Now friends, here in these two verses, 
we find these verses contrast two mindsets, two different lifestyles, two different philosophies, two different ways of doing things. You notice? It's patience and kindness versus pride, boastfulness, selfishness, and anger. The first expresses love, you'll notice, and builds it up. The second position, it destroys love. So there you have it. You see, friends, God's love, love is patient and love is kind. God's love is the greatest adversary to selfishness. You see, friends, the self-centered life is always trying to protect itself. It's always keeping threats away by putting up a proud and boastful exterior. You see, the selfish life, the self-centered life, it's me against them. That's the approach. You see, friends, the most basic of human problems is selfishness. And God's weapon against the most basic human problem, selfishness, is love. The person who is receiving and giving God's kind of love is secure enough to move out of their little circle of self. Why? Because they are receiving God's love. And the person who is receiving and giving true love, that person is able to be sensitive to other people's needs as well as his own. And my friends, it's this love, God's love, true love, that is the bedrock of any lasting relationship. We hear a lot about love today. All kinds of love. Love means a myriad of things today. But my friends, here God gives us the true understanding of def- and definition of love. True love. God's love. And so here we have a love that is the bedrock of any relationship and in contrast, selfishness is the greatest enemy of any relationship. You see, friends, giving our time, our attention, our concern, ourselves to someone else, it doesn't always come naturally because we are inherently selfish. At the heart of all evil is pride and selfishness. And it's interesting to note that the the middle letter of sin, pride, and Lucifer is which letter? I. I. It's no coincidence, my friends. And when you read of the fall of Satan in, in Isaiah, the 14th chapter, where he's saying, I will reach up to the Most High. I will do this. I will do that. I, I, I. That is the foundation of Satan's empire, selfishness. 
And my friends, as Byron pointed out in today's lesson, we are foolish if our entire life is based around self. Didn't Jesus say to the rich young fool, your soul will be demanded of you tonight. Why? Because you have said, I'm going to pull down my barns and I'm going to fill my barns with more goods for myself and I'm just going to have fun. Everything revolves around me, me, me. My friends, only God's love is strong enough to keep us giving throughout a lifetime. Only God's love can generate patient kindness when the going gets tough. Only God's love, my friends. Patient kindness during the tough times, that's God's kind of love. You know, it's either to be cheerful, happy and loving when all is going well. But it's when things get difficult, times get tough, that our love is genuinely put to the test. Isn't that right? Our commitment, our kindness, our patience. Kathy was driving to work one day and she was driving her husband's new car. She picked up her mobile phone and as she was concentrating on her phone, she didn't brake quick enough when the car in front of her stopped. Bang! Can you imagine her distress now? She's smashed the, the family, the, the new car. She got out. She was distressed. She was heartbroken. She was embarrassed. She was ashamed. And she, she tried to explain to the, the person whose car she'd crashed into, but the man said, listen, lady, I understand your predicament and I'm sympathetic, but we've got to swap details and I need to check your insurance. We need to swap numbers, insurance details, so that I can get my car fixed. You are in the wrong. And so tearfully, she went to the glove box and she pulled out the insurance papers. And as she opened the, the, uh, the, the, the pad, the insurance paper, there was a note written in a strong masculine hand. And the note said this, in case of accident, remember, honey, it's you I love, not the car. That's kindness when it really counts, isn't it? <laughs> That's the kind of love, my friends, that will last a life. And I'll tell you why. Because in today's world, things can very easily become more important than people. Isn't that right? Our whole world revolves around things, material possessions. If I can just, look, every television ad tells you, if you use this underarm deodorant, you will have to fight the girls off, fellas. Isn't that right? And if you use this particular kind of toothpaste, everyone will just love you forever. And if you drive this car, and if you live in this kind of house, and if you wear this kind of shoes, and if you have this kind of watch, then you're going to be happy. Isn't that right? Isn't that what every television ad tells us? My friends, that is the philosophy that we are bombarded with day in, day out, 
every day of the week. You can't escape it. Even on Sabbath, when you don't put the television or the radio on, when you're driving into church, those big billboards are there, aren't they? And they all communicate the same message. Get this for yourself and you will be happy. If you have this many possessions, then you will find satisfaction. That's why, friends, when God gave us the Ten Commandments, by the way, the Ten Commandments are God's principles for happy living, for satisfaction, for fulfillment in life. When God outlined his list of priorities, where did he put things? In the Tenth Commandment, isn't that right? Thou shalt not covet a neighbor's wife, da-da-da-da, or any thing that is thy neighbor's. Things come last in God's order of priority. Have you ever noticed God's order of priority there in the Ten Commandments? First God, then family, then other people in community, and last, things. But you know, friends, we in our society, we take God's list of priority and we turn them upside down. Isn't that right? Things are first, and then other people, then family, and if we've got any time left, a little bit of time for God as we fall asleep at night. Friends, God wants us to be happy, and that's why he tells us the right priority, the right order that will keep us fulfilled and satisfied. And my friends, that's why God tells us what true love is. True love is patient and true love is kind. And that's the kind of love that lasts a lifetime. But my friends, the self-centered, in contrast, they lash out at problems. The patient try to solve them. The self-centered react in anger to any threat. The patient overcome or try to solve them with kindness. I want to read to you the next two verses here from Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We've read 4 and 5. Now notice verses 6 and 7. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. Now notice, friends, it's telling us some important information here. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects. Now it's telling us what love does. It always protects. It always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Did you know that there are a lot of people today who delight in evil? You notice what it says, what it tells us there? Love does not what? Delight in evil. But friends, we live in a society where so many people today do delight in evil. You know, it's, it's so easy, isn't it, to keep a record of wrongs? Don't we do that? Oh, so-and-so, it's the second time he said that about me. It's the third time she did this. She did this, this, and this. And it even creeps into our marital relationships as well. What a difference it would make 
if we tried to believe the best about people instead of keeping a list of wrongs. Friends, God wants us to enjoy life to the full. He wants us to experience happiness. That's why he gives us this information about love. Because we were made to love. We were made to give love and we were made to receive love. That's what life's all about. Oh, I know work's important. And there are lots of other good things that are important. But my friends, our relationships are what is most important. Our relationship with God and our relationship with each other. That's what life is all about. And God wants us to enjoy life to the full. He wants us to get the most out of life. And that is why he gives us this information. Because he wants us to experience happiness. Remember this, that life is all about relationships. And God wants our relationships, our marriages, to express his kind of love. He wants our friendships. He wants our relationships. He wants our marriages, our homes to be a taste of heaven on this earth. That's what he wants. He wants us to experience the divine here and now. And God designed us, my friends, for just that. Now, I was speaking recently to a a counselor, a friend of mine, a pastor, and uh, he was telling me about uh, 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 an experience he'd, he'd just had, how a young woman had come to him for advice. And uh, he said to me, look, th- this couple had only been married for two years. And he said, here was this young lady, distraught, wanting to get out of the marriage, frustrated, annoyed, angry. She was in tears. And uh, she began to explain to, to the counsellor, to the pastor, that whatever she did, she could never please her husband. It didn't matter what she did. It was never good enough. And so here she was, annoyed, upset, anxious. And so the pastor thought, well, what am I going to do here? And so after some time, he decided that he would go and see her husband. And so he made an appointment, sat the husband down and said to him, look... You've got a, an upset wife. And she tells me that no matter what she does, it's not good enough. And so he began to, the husband then began to explain what things his wife did that he didn't like, that annoyed him. And then the pastor said, look, I'd like you to do something for me. I'm going to give you a little bit of homework to do. He said, I'd like you to make a list don't worry about it, Randy. It's okay. We will, we'll, 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 we'll survive. He said to, to, to Ben, I'd like, you, I'd like you to do something. And what I want you to do is this. I want you to make a list of all the things you like about your wife. He said, look, you've only been married two years. There must have been a lot of things you liked about that lady two years ago. And so the man agreed. And he made a list, 10 things the pastor said. Give me a list of 10 things you appreciate, you admire, you like about your wife. Yeah, so he said, you make a list. 
Ten things. And I want you to give me that list so I know why it is that you married this lady. And so he went to work and he made a list. And one week later, the pastor came back and said, all right, how did you go with the list? And he said, you know, I had no trouble. I've got a list. And in fact, I could find more than 10 things that I appreciated about my wife. You know, friends, when we sit down and start to to think about the people we have relationships with, if we think hard enough, and usually we don't have to think hard at all, we will find lots of things to be positive about. Many, many things that we can be positive about. And we need to do that in our relationships with the friends we have. You know, <clears throat> relationships are give and take. We are human beings. There are, there's nobody that's perfect. Not even ourselves. And we look at others and we see the mistakes they made, make and it's easy to make a list of those things that upset us, that annoy us. But instead of making a list of the things that annoy us, make a list of the things that are good about that person. Their strengths, their attributes that, that we like, that we admire. And see what a difference it makes to your relationships. You see, friends... <coughs> Our friendships, our relationships are not just a matter of convenience, not just a matter of of economics. God designed our relationships to be much more. We have the privilege of reflecting something of the divine, the beauty of patient kindness, the beauty of believing all things. Each of us in our homes, in our relationships, can build a Taj Mahal, a lasting monument. Remember, friends, we are builders by nature, we human beings. We love to build. Now let's put our energy, our our time and our effort into building something that will last forever. And what's better than our relationships. You know, the, the builder of the Taj Mahal, Shah Jahan, had one more great tragedy in his life. One of his sons grew proud and boastful and decided that he would usurp the empire. And so he overthrew his father in a coup and he had his father locked up in a, in, a, in, a, in a jail. It was actually a palace, but it was a jail because he couldn't come in. He couldn't leave it. And in that gilded jail, Shah Jahan spent the last eight years of his life. Imagine a man who ruled the, the, the world around him. Now he's confined by his own son to a prison cell. Yes, it was a a comfortable one, but a prison cell nevertheless. His one gratifying part of it all was that through the window he could see the Taj Mahal in the distance. 
And you know, when the, when the guards found Shah Jahar dead at the age of, of 74, his eyes were still open and there he was kneeling, looking over the railing, his eyes fixed on the Taj Mahal. That was his focus. And my friends, God wants each of us to have a monument like that, an expression of love that lasts forever. Forever. He wants our relationships, our marriages to fulfill that high calling. And so friends, it's my prayer this afternoon that each of us will remember those few short verses that define love and that we will take that advice that God has given us and put that advice into our relationships, into our marriages, into our homes, so that we here on this earth will experience a taste of heaven even before Jesus comes. Let's pray. <clears throat> Dear Heavenly Father, Thank you for your love and goodness to us. Thank you for your many blessings. Lord, you have made us to love and be loved. You've made us as social creatures that find health and happiness in relationships. And Lord, we thank you that you have told us how to love. You have told us what true love is so that we can experience it in our lives right here, right now. Bless us each to this end. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This message was made available by Fountain in the City. For more resources like this, visit fountaininthecity.com.au.
Marlena Fong sang I Have a Friend. Before that, we heard Aka Peldridge sing What a Friend We Have in Jesus. We hope you enjoy the short presentation of how God led His people after the Reformation from lineagejourney.com. Ellen White wasn't the first or only person to receive visions during this time period. Two men also received the gift of prophecy, but each one would have vastly different experiences and outcomes in their lives and ministry. God often overlooks people that are qualified in an earthly sense and uses those whom others might not. Academic qualifications, eloquent speech, and a popular personality are all valued by society, but God looks for the person who is humble, who, if they are used, will bring honor to God. The first person worthy of our mention is William Foy. William Foy, an African-American, was known as an exceptional speaker and was in his early 20s in 1842 when he received several dramatic visions. The first was on January the 18th and it lasted for two and a half hours and happened in a church in Southwark Street here in Boston. A physician was present and could detect no sign of life except around his heart. His breath had left him. He had a second vision on February the 4th that lasted for 13 and a half hours and was instructed to share this vision with others. William Foy was hesitant to go public due to the large amount of prejudice he would receive as an African-American during this period of America's history. Yet when he received an invitation to speak in a church and share his vision, he agreed. The church gladly heard his message and he soon got invitations over the next three months to speak in churches of all different denominations. William Foy served faithfully as a prophet in the pre-Great Disappointment period. He never said that his gift would extend for a long time or that he would receive more visions. The evidence seems to suggest that he received a specific message for a specific time and that he faithfully fulfilled this task. The second man to receive visions was named Hazen Foss. In January of 1845, he met Ellen White and told her his story. Shortly after she received her first vision, he received the exact same vision and was instructed to tell others about it, yet he didn't. Still upset after the great disappointment of 1844 and possibly not wanting to open himself to ridicule, he refused. The Lord came to him and told him that he would have another opportunity, yet if he still refused, the gift would be given to somebody else. Even with such a warning, he manifested a recalcitrant and rebellious attitude and did not share, and a strange feeling came over him, and he heard a voice say, you have grieved away the Spirit of God. Frightened and horrified, he decided he would share the vision and called a meeting of the Advent believers. He explained to those present what had happened, 
but when it came time to share the vision, he couldn't remember any of it, not even a single word. Those present later described it as a most horrible and sobering scene. As he spoke to Ellen White, he implored her to be faithful to the gift that God had given her and lamented himself as a lost man. He would live till his 70s and lies buried here, but in his life he would never show any more spiritual interest again. Here in East Sullivan in northern Maine, we have the grave of William Foy. And so we have the story of two men, one obedient to the call of God and one resistant to the call of God. The best time to follow God, the best time to follow His plan for our lives is always the earliest time. It is never good to delay, to debate or to barter with God. If God is calling you to ministry, harden not your heart. Follow the Lord and share the message wherever He leads. view more episodes in the series, visit lineagejourney.com. Hi, I'm Marilyn, the two-tip lady who loves to help make your life more simple. Have you ever fought the urge to shut your eyes and go to sleep in church? Oh, I have. But there was one time recently when I didn't even dream about shutting my eyes. Nope, I listened. And I heard a word that I'd never, ever heard before. Litotes. I bet you haven't heard it before either. It fascinated me. Made me sit up and listen really got my gastric juices of my brain going. And I loved the way the preacher used it and encouraged us to think. Here's what he said. Litotes means to state something positive in a negative way. What? What did he mean? It's when we affirm something by expressing it in a negative way. Oh, I think you're going to want an example. Instead of stating something directly, you state that the contrary statement is not true. Now, this is getting a bit complicated, I think, so here's an example. I won't be sorry, which really means I'll be glad. Here's another. She's not bad, which means she's great. Visitors to our home have often used a Litotes comment when coming after a meal because we eat plant-based and we get the feeling that they think they're going to, we, we're just going to serve them carrots and celery sticks on a few lettuce leaves and that they'll go away hungry. But after finishing a delicious meal, they'll often say, well, that wasn't bad, or it certainly wasn't inedible, meaning that was pretty good. Or after listening to an inspiring sermon, we might say when we're asked about it, well, I didn't go to sleep, meaning it was interesting. Or you might say, I'm not starving, when you really mean you're getting pretty hungry. Here's a biblical example. Paul denigrates himself in order to magnify God's grace. 
for example, when he says, I'm the least of the apostles because I persecuted the church of God. It's a pretty negative looking statement, but he is really magnifying God's incredible grace to choose him to be one of his leaders. So here's my first tip for today. Listen for examples of Lytotis as you go through the day. You'll probably be surprised, as I've been, how often you'll hear examples. And yes, you'll use them yourself. Here's another. You won't be sorry you bought that. Meaning, you'll be happy you did. Now, I'm sure you won't be sorry when I quit talking about things that really make me think. So now, what's my first tip today? Tip number one. Say what you mean. And mean what you say. And you'll never have to think of Lytotes again. Woohoo! This is bound to make your life more simple. Say what you mean and mean what you say. James wrote in James chapter 5, verse 12, But above all things, my brethren, swear not neither by heaven, neither by the earth, neither by any other oath, but let your yea be yea and your nay nay, lest ye fall into condemnation. I like that. It's so much easier in life when we say what we mean and mean what we say. Tip number two is a simple one too. Don't put the mind in neutral and the tongue in gear. Think first, then speak. Why? Because the psalmist says, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in pictures of silver. What are those two tips today? Say what you mean, mean what you say. Tip two, don't put the mind in neutral and the tongue in gear. Think first, then speak. Your life is going to become much more of a blessing to all of those around you if you will follow these two tips and put them into practice today. So that's it right now from the two-tip lady who loves to help you make your life more simple. This program has been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio.